0: Do, 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 do. Morning. <laughs> Hi. All right. Good to see you guys. Um, I'm Chris, by the way. If you're new or been new over oh, the last three months, thank you're here. I'm glad you're here. Um, uh, one of the pastors here, and I've uh, been on sabbatical and uh, been been out uh, for a while, and so just. Um, Hopefully this is like riding a bike, right? You just kind of get back on it and you can do it again. Um, so we'll see. <laughs> this is over. Uh, so uh, first of all, I just want to say thank you. Uh, thank you for, for allowing an opportunity to kind of just, uh, just to be away and, um, and to spend time with my family. Um, I have uh, been married now just about 20 years here, coming up in a couple months, and I uh, got four kids, um, two 17-year-olds now, which is crazy. Um, this is, that's where my hair went. Um, with that, uh, which, by the way, that's new for me. Um, it's not new for me, actually. It's been like two months, but I realized it's new for you. So I was walking around, they were like, who is this guy? I'm like, oh, it's, it's me underneath the mask. That's why I wore the Dodger mask. I hope you'd be able to recognize me. Um, better than the Reds, Cardinals, whatever's being worn out there in this g- general vicinity uh, over there. Um, so... Uh, <laughs> Uh, but anyway, so it's um, it's uh, what was I even saying? See, this is like right. I gotta get back on the bike, right? I'm just like starting to I need training wheels. Um, so anyway, so just want to say thank you uh, for for allowing the opportunity to get away. Um, like I said, two 17 year olds, 15 year old, 12 year old, and that's uh, an opportunity to be kind of out with them uh, for this summer. And uh, and so uh, what I'm gonna do with this morning is actually just kind of share a little bit about um, about what I learned. Um, before that, I was I was also asked to kind of share a little bit about what we did. And so I'll just take a few minutes here to kind of Share some of the things we we uh, we did as a as a family. Our original plans um, got completely blown away, um, which you probably if I had that experience right, uh, this is all all new for all of us. And so we were planning on going to California. That didn't happen, um, and uh, and so which is where we're, we're from. And so we uh, we changed, changed those plans. Um, first day I, I think I left here. I hauled thirty books out of my library home with me. Uh, so I could read. I didn't get a chance to read all of them, but uh, I did get a chance to read some of them. So first few weeks I spent doing home projects, which, by the way, so you understand what that means. That means I watch YouTube videos, um, and I still uh, call Eric Hampton or Kenny or Mike Mulligan to say, what in the world am I doing? Like, help me out here. Uh, So that's uh, pretty common. Uh, I had a lot of time with the family. Again, um, they didn't have uh, any school there, and then uh, Sarah finished her schooling. She's finished two master's degrees um, in, uh, in mental health counseling, addiction counseling, and works at care to change now, which I'm really proud of her and excited about that for her. And, uh, and so that was kind of going on this summer in the midst of all of that. Had some local excursions, kind of just getting out in creation. You kind of see some of those there. Bought some inflatable kayaks, which was kind of fun. Uh, a Dodger went with us on most places that we went. That's out at Eagle Creek. Uh, I think the first time I was out though, the ore uh, broke, snapped on me with me and Calvin. And I had to, like doggy paddle my way back uh, to, to shoreline. So that was uh, pretty fun. I went to Turkey Run for the first time. I know it's like you guys have been to Turkey Run a million times probably, had never been there. So I uh, went to Turkey Run. I went to the, uh, the Mega Cav- uh, Caves down in uh, Louisville, as you can see there, uh, ziplining through there. And then uh, a place called White Rock, which I didn't know existed. It's like in the middle of nowhere, Indiana. Um, I'm not quite sure where it's at, but it's an old rock quarry uh, they fill with water that you can go ziplining. The funny thing about that is it took about, um, uh, about an hour and a half to get Sarah to jump off the ledge, off the edge of the cliff. Um, during that hour and a half, uh, she tried to persuade lifeguards to shove her off, but they wouldn 't do it. Uh, she befriended a of the nine year old girl up there who actually helped persuade her. Her counsel to Sarah was, "You get to the edge and you say, "Not today, Satan," and you jump in like that 's what you say. <laughs> so it still didn 't work for Sarah. She still stood there, uh, and then she would get to the edge and then walk away, and then get to the edge and walk away. All of us were yelling, like, "Just do it." Um, she 'd eventually jump in, so that was good. she did that. Uh, in mid-June, um, early June, actually, I got the um, uh, the brilliant idea to go RV camping to Yellowstone. Um, it would be fun, they said. Um, <laughs> you already know my affinity for camping, and I thought, well, this will be different. Uh, it wasn't different. Um, I hated it, honestly. And, I, and, let me, and, let me, and let me correct that. Let me correct that, actually. We hated it. Like, I asked all my kids. We all, you know, we didn't like it. It started off by, uh, by us, um, Sophie and I, going out to scope the place out where we were going to rent this RV from, and uh, it was like part tackle shop, part rent- rental of RVs, which is kind of concerning, because I was there with Sophie, and Sophie, uh, she goes, uh, Dad, are you sure this is going to be safe? Because they like sell worms and stuff. Like, this is what <laughs> they do. Like, are we sure we want to rent from them? I'm like, yeah, it'll be fine. Um, so next day, we, we drove up, rented it, drove it home, packed it up. Um, so funny that when I went up there, by the way, it took like three hours to get it because the guy reminded me of the, you um, remember the sloths um, on Zootopia? <laughs> this guy was a one-finger pusher, but like one-finger pusher in the means of like, he'd never seen a keyboard before. He's like, C, where's that at? Uh, H, and I'm like, oh, this is painful. So we got started a lot later than I planned. Um, by the time we got out, uh, we filled up the, uh, the RV with all of our stuff, um, and uh, and drove out. You can see that's our, our trip on the way out there. I'm not sure why Calvin always got jumped on. And the poor, he's a junior hire. That's what happens with the junior hire. So um, drove 26 straight hours. Um, I did, which I like to drive. It's fun. Um, the last four or five were not fun. Um, and so uh, to get out there. Um, <laughs> one of the funny story on the way out. On the back of this camper thing, we had. Um, I'll call it a camper thing now. Uh, is um, It's like I used to call it the corn, the corn machine or something. Is what I first called the when I got here. I'm like, who's that corn machine out there? Uh, The combine. See there you go. (laughs) Thank you. That thing. So the RV. um, This is all for you, just to make fun of me. I hope you enjoy. I hope you're laughing with me and not at me, right? Um, So on the way out there, on the back of this RV was this picture of Devil's Tower, which I'd never seen before, of course. And driving out there and. We stop at this rest stop, and I, I swear I think I see Devil's Tower from there. I was like, this is it, guys. This is it. So we get in driving. I'm pointing it out. You know, it's right there, you know? And Calvin, poor guy, is like, I don't see it. I'm like, I'm, I'm like shaming him. I'm like, dude, it's right there. Like, how can you not see the, the tower? And then Sophie starts to like geography shame him um, in terms of, "It's a plateau. You don't know what a plateau is? When I was your age, I knew all about plateaus, and so she's like <laughs> criticized him for that. About 15 miles later, I saw an exit that said uh, 30 miles off the road was Devil's Tower. So Calvin was right the whole time. I was pointing <laughs> to the wrong thing the whole time. That's kind of part, mostly part of the trip here. So we arrived in West Yellowstone. Uh, if you ever seen the movie RV with Robin Williams, we relived that movie, basically. <laughs> it started with, uh, with emptying the tank, um, which I assigned to my oldest son. And uh, he, let's just say he didn't quite clamp it on correctly and pulled the lever Exactly. You know what happened after that. I will have to explain it. Um, once we get everything hooked up, seriously, this is like first night. Get everything hooked up. We go back to lay down. Like we're all cranky. You can imagine. Uh, you know, six full, full grown adults inside, jammed into what is like a, I don't know, like a, a studio apartment size, basically. And uh, and we're all trying to get some sleep. 5 a.m. rolls around, first morning, and I don't know who the guy was, the engineer of this vehicle, but he engineered a fan, a large fan, opening right above where the bed is. So that it served as a skylight, right? At five AM. So the light is just shining right in my eyeball, and I'm just like staring up and I start to cry. And I look over, I look at Sarah, she's like crying. And then we start laughing. You ever laugh cried? Like so much so that you can't stop, and then you cry more, laugh more, and you just lose it because you're so tired. So we're both back there. She looks at me, she goes, What were we thinking? <laughs> we're not camping people. And we're definitely not RV people. Now, we're we're hotel people. That's what she said. We're, we're hotel people. What are we doing? And so we're just just dying laughing and crying at the same time. The kids, of course, on the you know other side of the drape, basically, are like, shut it, and they're like, we're trying to sleep and trying to explain to them we can't help it. Like, I can't stop laughing, crying right now. I, I, I can't. And they're like, stop laughing. I'm like, it's not funny, but I can't stop. <laughs> um, grunts and sighs and tears and laughter filled the RV. Yeah, that's what was... Uh, our time. So, now Yellowstone, absolutely beautiful. Absolutely loved it. I um, uh, would go there again in the heartbeat stay in hotel for sure. Um, but the hikes, the landscape, you know, the animals, I mean, it was all fantastic just seeing God out in creation. Um, you know, daytimes are fun. I actually got to meet up with, uh, if you know my, my story here, I got to meet up with Pastor Ed and his wife, Lou, who I used to work with out in, in Los Angeles. Uh, they retired, live in Bozeman. And so we kind of met them there and uh, spent some time with them, which was really, really cool. Um, got to do some some RTV in, and um, oh, that one was funny, that picture there, because that that, bi- that bison decided that he was going to ru- walk on the road, and everyone had to wait for him, so he was he was like traffic. It was hilarious. Have you ever been there? It's like amazing, these animals are just everywhere. like come right up to your to your door. Um, and so anyway, so we did some rafting, visited some different places with the Jackson hole. you ever been there? It was fun. It was supposed to be ten days at day six. we all looked at each other and said let's go home. <laughs> I returned this thing three days early uh, by the time I got home. Uh, we got home, like unpacked it you know, in the driveway, had the passing thought, probably verbal thought of, you know, let's just burn this thing to the ground type idea. Um, but anyway, that was my RV trip. So you can ask me more later if you'd like to know. Uh, after recovering for a couple of days, we drove to uh, South Florida down to a place called Pompano Beach. And uh, and got a got an Airbnb, a house. Now that was vacation to me. Like that was that was really enjoyable. Um, we uh, my kids thought I wouldn't come back. By the way, I did, but they thought I was stuck in Florida the rest of my life because I loved it. It was like it was so much fun. And um, I'd go out snorkeling about every day because I love snorkeling. Love seeing just creation underneath the water, and uh, I'd go out for hours by myself. You know, I bought like a whole gear set and bought the flag, you know, so boats don't hit me, and <laughs> like went out there, swam about 100, 100 yards offshore to a reef, and just would hang out there um, all that time. I took the twins out there one time, my 17-year-old twins. Um, we went out there, and so we, we just get, you finally, after about 100 yards, you get out to where you need to be, and, um, and I hear underneath the water about five minutes into it a high-pitched squeal, which is my 17-year-old son. And um, I'm looking around thinking like, oh, he sees something cool. Like, what, what is this? And so I can see him just pointing like this, you know, and um, I look back, I see Sophie has grabbed a hold of the the cork, you know, the diving pole, like just, just gripping it like this. And I'm like, what is it? And it's a reef shark, you know, starts doing this number, like circling around us. And they're all like, you can hear the screaming underwater. So I kind of, you know, back up to them, I'm like just keep keep back to back here and just watch this thing. It would probably circle three or four times and uh, pretty good size. And, you know, they're freaking out and... I didn't know it at first. What happened was after he kind of, I popped my head up after he kind of left, and I looked around and see Sophie. I'm like, where is she at? She's a swimmer, by the way, at Brownsburg. So about halfway to shoreline she was. So she had already sprinted. Like, she was gone. <laughs> she was like, I'm done. <laughs> Just left me and my son out there. She had sprinted back uh, to, the, uh, to the shoreline. Um, the, uh, we got to do this airboat ride in Everglades. That was really cool. Um, do some, something called sea bobbing may not be something you've heard of, but basically it's like jet skis you can take underneath the water um, down about 15 feet. And so that was a lot of fun. We had a good time doing that. Um, oh, if you can go back a picture or two, because I got to explain that one uh, the other direction, I think. Go back, back, back. That one. There's my poor Sophie. <laughs> they were underwater, and Calvin had the idea of, of going deep underwater with a sea bob and coming straight back up where Sophie was, smiling, and ran smack dab <laughs> right into her. Um, yep, busted her lip, lost her nose ring, um, but she was kind enough to take a picture with her brother, who seemed all too happy to take that picture. Um, <laughs> so uh, so, anyway, so, we got to do that, uh, did some beach trips, of course, in you know, Florida. At one point, I know Sarah and Sadie were out there with their, like, uh, uh, the little tubes, what do you call those things, the uh, foam foam sticks, I guess is what you call them. So they're out there just hanging around the water, and everyone gets out of the water running, and they're still, like, you know, chirping, talking, um, out in the water and realize what well, all of a sudden is a shark, right? A shark's on the shoreline, and they didn't notice it. So I'm like, yeah, I, I can get kind of loud. And so I started yelling from the shoreline, I'm like, get out of the water! And lifeguards are yelling, they're like, what? What's going on? And so like they all of a sudden realize and take off like almost like running on water, you know? Sadie like flails her like, noodle at it, you know, and kind of like runs out of the water, trying to get out. Um, did deep sea fishing, which was a lot of, which was really honestly my favorite part. I, I, I would have stayed out there on that boat for days. Uh, it was a lot of fun. Um, my own personal Disney World. Uh, we caught you know typical stuff out there like uh, the tunas and barracudas and caught a sailfish which was really cool. Um, caught some some deep sea like rosefish, tilefish. you had those; those were really tasty. That was dinner the next two nights. And then we caught a five to six hundred pound um, <laughs> bull shark, <laughs> which was took an hour for all five, all six of us actually to reel this thing in. We like took turns. I'm like this thing is like taking forever. We didn't know what we caught, it, but obviously it was pretty big. So, um, so that was kind of fun. Uh, we kept him in the water, actually. We didn't pull him into the boat. Um, <laughs> all right, so that was my trip. I can, obviously, I obviously want to know more, you can ask me, but I just kind of wanted to share with you some of the things we did as a family. It was kind of a lot of fun, uh, kind of show and tell, like third grade class here for a moment. But what did I learn? Uh, I read quite a few books, um, along with kind of reading the Gospel of Matthew, which I read this morning. I'll talk more about that here in a little bit. Um, even read some other stuff. Like, have you ever heard? Remember, heard of Wendell Berry. He's an author. I uh, read, read some Wendell Berry books. He's from Kentucky, uh, farm guy. It was awesome. Like, I was trying to, you know, understand farming a little bit. The, the corn machine thing. Um, no, uh, Wendell Berry was was uh, was good. Uh, finished a, like a tome on Winston Churchill. Finally, I think it's like a, a old phone book. It was huge. Um, but there were four that stood out to me. The kind of formable lessons, kind of blending that with Matthew and kind of going through that. And we'll uh, share some of that with you. It shouldn't be shocking. Um, to, to, to share with you that all they all had to do with church history, if you know me at all. I love uh, church history, uh, learning from that. Uh, there were four guys um, that I kind of read about. Uh, one was uh, named um, Augustine uh, from the 4th century, Thomas Goodwin from the 17th century, John Newton, if you don't recognize that name, you may recognize the hymn Amazing Grace. He's a writer of that, um, which I'll talk a lot about this morning. I'll spend most of my time talking about him. Um, 18th century, and then, of course, I read some C.S. Lewis, right? That's still church history, 20th century. Um, and so, uh, so there you go. So here they are. So number one. Uh, first thing I say I learned about in my reading, uh, just kind of the heart of Jesus, and Eddie read it, just read it a little while ago uh, from Matthew 11:29, 29, where Jesus says, take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Um, Thomas Goodwin, I was the one that kind of read read about uh, a lot about this. And the idea of when Jesus talks about being gentle, just learning a lot about what, what that means. Um, and I guess I've told you before, a lot of times it's saying, what does it not say? To kind of help you understand what it does say. Um, and to say that Jesus is gentle is kind of the idea, like he's not, he's not trigger happy, um, It's like uh, he's not like the elementary boy with the magnifying glass, you know, trying to find the ants he can fry, you know, with the uh, magnifying glass. Um, He's not harsh, not reactionary, or easily exasperated, uh, which makes Jesus the most understanding person in the history of the world and actually the most approachable person in the history of the world. You read Matthew, you read any of the Gospels, everyone felt they could talk to even people that hated Jesus, you'll see, felt the freedom and the ability to come talk to him. I mean, over and over again, the Gospels are people approaching Jesus. Christ, right? He was he was approachable um, in so many ways, Um, and to say that he's lowly goes along with that. It's the idea again; he's accessible, um, especially to those who we would say uh, in the Gospels you read would be unimpressive, right? The people that no one else would kind of talk to, uh, those who were not the life of the party, as it were. Uh, Even according to that passage in Matthew eleven, the only thing that qualifies you to come to Jesus is is really to have a burden, right? Which qualifies all of us right to come to him. it's uh, in Matthew. We see see uh, when Jesus sees the fallen fallness of the world around him. And I thought this, this is so interesting to read. When he sees the fallenness around him, he he doesn't cringe, right? He doesn't shun it. Um, he doesn't run away from it, right? If it was Facebook around, he didn't post on Facebook about his disgust about it, right? Instead, he he went towards it. Actually, right? I mean, he moved towards brokenness. He moved towards. Um, all the all the things that were just broken in the world and the sin that was right, he moved towards people in that way. Um, that was his deepest impulse, right? When he sees the faults of the world, is to move towards it. Um, he uh, he walked the earth, rehumanizing like the dehumanized, cleansing the unclean. Why did he do it? You know, why did he do that? Because when sadness confronted him, um, you know, uh, in, in every town. Yet, yet, Thomas Goodwin would say. Um, he said, uh, this didn't drain the heart of Jesus. People coming to him actually filled his heart. It actually was life in many ways. Like he he was drawn to them. Another way uh, Goodwin related some of his thoughts, he talks about, he said, quote, high, this high and holy Christ does not cringe at reaching out and touching dirty sinners and numbed sufferers. He cannot bear to hold back. He just you just can't hold him back. Like, he's like, you know, it's like the old Scrappy-Doo. Remember Scrappy-Doo? Hold me back, you know? Let me, let me at him, let me at him. Like, I mean, Jesus is like, I'm going. I'm going after them. I'm going towards them. Um, matter of fact, in the, in the Gospel of Matthew, um, I thought it was interesting. Sorry, one more thing. One of the biographers had said, um, many think of Jesus touching us the way a little boy t- reaches out to touch a slug for the first time, right? Face cringed, cautiously extending an arm, given a yelp of disgust upon contact, and instantly withdrawing, and Goodman talked about like how we, you know, we see Jesus as, but the, we think of him as a severe and sour disposition. But Jesus tells us in Matthew eleven, his heart is. He, he talks about he's gentle and lowly of heart. He's approachable. He's accessible. He goes after that. Um, interesting. When you read the Gospel of Matthew, and it is, I encourage you to go back and read it because. We're actually going to go through Matthew for a ch- as a church for a couple months. We're going to kind of highlight the life of Christ a little bit. We're going to not do the whole book because um, we've actually taught a lot of the, the beginning of it, the nativity part. We've taught those first three kind of chap- early chapters. And the Summer of the Mount we did a summer night series um, with men's and women's Bible studies recently. So we're going to kind of take some of the, the narrative portions of that. And I encourage you to just kind of start reading that. But uh, in the Gospel of Matthew, and I encourage you to find this, he literally, God of the universe, the God of the universe, Touches people over 40 times in the Gospel of Matthew. I just found that fascinating as I read through just to see him, I mean, and he didn't have to, right? I mean, there's moments where he obviously could just say, healed, right? Demon gone, right? I mean, he, he's done that. The storm, he could speak a word, right? He had that power, he had that ability, but he went out of his way, like for, I love chapter eight, to, to do what with the leper? Touched him, right? No one touched a leper. No one got even close to a leper, and yet Jesus reached out and touched him, right? Uh, just fascinating to see that, just the heart of Christ over and over again. Um, I'll, I'll move on from this point with one last quote. Dane Ortlund, who wrote uh, this book on, on Goodwin, said, "'Whom do you perceive him to be?" Speaking of Jesus. Who do you, who do you perceive him to be in your sin and your suffering? Who do you think God is? Not just on paper, but, in the kind of, but but in the kind of person you believe is hearing you when you pray. How does he feel about you? His saving of us is not cool and calculating. It's a matter of yearning, not yearning for the Facebook you, the you that you project to everyone around you, not the you that you wish you were, yearning for the real you, the you underneath everything you present to others. That's the heart of Christ. He yearns for the real you, Um, the person underneath, the person that maybe no one else really knows, right? Not your projected self, your real self. And that's what i love about seeing the gospel of matthew so number one I was the first thing I learned. number two um so talk about the heart of heart of jesus the second one um uh, was called the rest of jesus right this is from a guy named augustine way back in the fourth century it was actually much more modern than he is ancient actually in a lot of his 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 works um he made the famous statement and i've shared this with you before uh, where he said uh, our hearts are restless until we find our rest in you speaking of god and his whole journey, his whole life was one of trying to find this kind of, he'll call rest. Trying to, trying to find it in the world, failing to do so over and over again, and only finding that in Christ. He spent most, most of his life kind of searching the wrong places, his, his uh, kind of biography. It's called The Confessions, uh, which is a kind of a famous classic book, actually, uh, back in the 4th century. But uh, he, he tried to find it, in money, sex, power, fame, like he was from Africa. He moved, uh, tried to get to, he did eventually get to Rome, because Rome was the big city in the ancient world, right? I'm going I'm to find life there. I'm going to find rest there. I'm going to find an identity, who I am, there. And he runs there, and he doesn't find it, right? He just gets more and more lost. Um, matter of fact, he would say that uh, his experience he would talk about he said quote, "I had left myself and couldn 't find me <laughs> I turned myself I turned myself into a famished land that I had to live in right I had to live in this land that i 've created this place I'm trying to search and he wanted to get home he talked about he wanted to get home to god didn 't know how he wanted to be like the prodigal you know, he read that story and wanted to come home uh, but didn 't know how to get home um, he said uh, quote he said what if what if God sent a boat across this ocean of life is kind of part of his kind of one, his ponderings he said what if the creator captain as it were a ferry that that uh, from from the other shore he kind of visualized himself standing on the shoreline across water to get to god that he could never get to and so he concluded he said that's exactly what god had done in christ he said quote for no one can cross the sea of this world unless carried it carried over on the cross of Christ. It's not just a matter of finally kind of settling down or coming to the end of the road, as it were. He talked about finding rest. We find rest because we're found, right? And Augustine was famous for, for that. He understood like he didn't find God. God found him. <laughs> like he, he searched after him. He came after him in that way. And he, he wrote a lot. He commented on Matthew 11. Again, same passage, which is interesting enough, kept coming back to me. Matthew eleven thirty 30 uh, says, for my yoke is easy, speaking of Jesus, and my burden is light. And Augustine said on that verse, he said, every other burden in the world, and he knew this by experience, every other, every other burden oppresses you, feels heavy. But Christ's burden, he said, lifts you up. Any other burden is a crushing weight, but Christ's burden has wings, he said. Like it lifts you up. It's a different kind of weight. Um, that's why he would talk a lot about being, being found by Jesus. As, when he got found by Jesus, he found life. He found rest. He found home. Uh, Even finding our our kind of true selves who really are, we find that in Christ. The world didn't give that to him. He couldn't find God or himself in that way. He said this, he said, quote, I am absorbed by everydayness. This may be familiar to you. I'm absorbed by everydayness. I give myself over to these producers of bustling activity who are more than happy to take the burden of selfhood off of my own hands, right? He said, "I I get so busy, I just do my thing, that I lose track of who who, who am I? Why am I here? Who is God? How do I know him, right? Just getting caught up in the bustling of activity. And he talked about it. We try to cover that up um, by just keeping ourselves just super busy. Um, He he talked a lot about, Augustine talked about, we live in this world, uh, and and this is, again, very very modern. It's not anything new about how we define freedom, how they define freedom in ancient Rome. How we define freedom today is very similar. Uh, He said we we define uh, freedom as resisting the crowd type thing right? Rising above the masses, um, being true to yourselves, forging your own path, right? Um, you do you, is what we're told today, right? You just do you. <laughs> you just be, just be you. And Augustine tried to be him, right? He tried all of that. That didn't work. Um, and the problem, uh, one of the biographers I was reading said, the problem with that whole philosophy of life that we as human beings try to do us and just be ourselves and forge our own path to freedom he said, the problem with that is that in our culture, we need to Instagram, he said, our trailblazing path so that everyone can see it and constantly check the likes to make sure we're on the right path, right? Am I, am I on the right path here? Is there enough people like it? enough people okay with me? <laughs> and so he said, we just, we're just this just trap, we're like a mousetrap, just kind of running around the circle with trying to find this kind of freedom. This is why he would talk about um, idolatry a lot. Everything in the world, he would say, you know, as we try to make an ultimate thing, becomes uh, this exercise he called it futility. He would say that it doesn't work, um, which is why it creates this restless heart, why we're always restless, we, don't, we can't find this rest. No person, no place, no thing, I've told you this before, can, is meant to carry the weight of your human soul. There is no person, no place, no thing that is meant to carry the weight of your human soul outside of God himself, right? You were, that's what Augustine would argue all the time, you're made for him, like, you're made to find that in him, you're not gonna find it anywhere else. But he talked about idolatry, which is like we're, we're kind of making a good thing, an ultimate thing, right? I must have it. Um, he says, we're, we're enjoying what we're supposed to be using. He says it's, like, it's like falling in love with the boat rather than the destination. You know, the problems that the boat won't last forever. Uh, it's going to start to feel claustrophobic on that boat, right? Um, and so our heart was built for another shoreline. He said this, Augustine said, quote, For whoever, uh, wherever the human soul turns itself, other than to you, speaking of God, it is fixed in sorrows even if it's fixed upon beautiful things. Even if it's fixed upon beautiful things, good things. That's what idolatry does, right? It's a good thing, it's a beautiful thing, it's a noble thing, and we pour ourselves into it and it lets us down, right? Uh, The commentator, I'll I'll read the last part and I'll move on. This uh, James Smith, the guy who wrote the book on Augustine, he said, if the road has beat you down, if the sights have become predictable and tired and there are nights that you look at your friends in the car and you wonder, what are we doing? Please just let me out. If you're weary from the chase, broken by the journey, tired of the disappointment, unsettled by a sense that you'd like to find some rest, not in accomplishments, but in welcome, then Augustine might be the stranger you need to travel with for a while, right? <laughs> He's the follow. He knows. He's been through it. He tried everything. He found that in God. Thirdly, Another lesson I learned this summer. I will say the vision of Jesus, and this is going to be from C.S. Lewis. This may not be some new stuff to you. <laughs> it's not necessarily new stuff for me, but it's just kind of neat seeing some kind of different sides to this. Um, Lewis would argue, if you're familiar with him at all, he would argue that we live in what he called the Shadowlands. Right? We live in Shadowlands. Um, the idea is that we're we're not awake. Right? That's why he would write his Chronicles and Narnia series. It's like the whole thing is trying to get us to wake up to the real. There's a real world out there. He would. Narnia, right? There's a real world there. Um, he would argue that we kind of sleepwalk our way through life. We numb ourselves to the busyness. We numb ourselves to, the, to things or people, and we just kind of fall asleep, um, only semi-conscious of the eternal uh, in that weight, things that bait the, weight, that bear the weight of glory, which is what his book was, The Weight of Glory. He would talk about if conversion is the moment of awakening to the reality of God, then discipleship is the effort to stay awake, I thought it was really interesting, right? Discipleship is the effort to stay awake to the reality of God. Like, you wake up, right? The lights come on. You're made alive in Christ. You're like, and if, you, and if you've experienced this, if you've come to know Christ, you know what I'm talking about, right? The lights come on. You're like, I see the world completely differently, right? I see people differently. Like, everything is different. I'm, it's like my eyes are open for the first time, right? And he said, like, discipleship is that fight to keep the eyes open, <laughs> right? Because we, we kind of just lulled asleep. sleep. And we lose the reality of God and our passion for God and all of that. Um, you'll see this in the Gospel of Matthew over and over again. Jesus making calls like to, to, to watch, to stay awake. Remember the Garden of Gethsemane? Remember his disciples kept falling asleep, right? And he kept admonishing them to, to stay awake, stay alert, and they would just lull themselves to sleep. And that's our fight, really, to stay awake to the reality of God. Ephesians Paul, one of Paul's prayers there, his first part of that prayer says that we would have eyes, the eyes of our heart would be what? Enlightened? What's that mean? Open. <laughs> he's praying for Christians. But he's praying that their eyes would open up because they've shut them, right? They've they've lost that reality um, that you may know what the hope of your calling is. Later on, in that same book, Ephesians five fourteen, he says, um, "Awake, O sleeper, arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you." There's just kind of that theme you find of just sleeping, just going to sleep. And so we we are we're easily lulled to sleep by the world. And Lewis made the constant effort to call Christians to wake up, to see the reality of God in two places, he would talk about you know Outside of Scripture itself, but in our regular everyday world, to see the reality of God in creation and to see the reality of God when he referred to creation, meaning nature, and the reality of God in people, right? Those are the two things that we we need to see God as we see people who are made the image of God and we see a creation that's been made by the hands of God, right? Um, he, would, he would spend a lot of time talking about that. and he would. He would, um, he would talk about looking along those things to see the reality of God to them. you know, Looking long enough at a, at a tree or an animal or a person to we see and feel the reality and glory of God right in them. It's not just stuff, he would argue. Stuff's not just stuff. People aren't just people. He said, you're asleep if that's all you see. Right? If all you see is just stuff and all you see is just people and you don't see the reality of God behind them, then you've, you've fallen asleep. Right? That's what he would argue. Um, He found uh, Lewis found that this world is uh, most honest. He said most true when it's pointing beyond itself. It's not an end in and of itself. We're not naturalists in that sense. That the creation is just an end. That's all there is. There's a creator. There's an artist behind it. There's a creator. There's an artist behind that person. Um, And everyone, um, everyone becomes almost like everything becomes like almost like a forty five degree mirror that we look at and we see the reality of God. Right as we look along that here's one of the things he said this is good he says if if the key to the deepest meaning of this world lies outside this world then the world will probably be illumined most deeply not simply by describing the world as what is but by likening the world to what is not and he said only supernaturalists really see nature only supernaturalists really see nature you must go a, a little way from her he says turn around look back and at last, the true landscape he says, has become visible because you see the reality of God in what is out there. It's not just a tree. It's not just stuff. It's not just people. And I love when we talked about people. Um, he would refer a lot to the reality of God and people because why? Because every person is made in the what? Image of God, right? They're made in the image of God. It's like the creation has been made by a creator, right, by, by his hand. And this is a little longer quote. Stick with me on this one, but this is really good. Lewis said this. He said, it's a serious thing to remember that the dullest, most uninteresting person you can talk to may one day be a creature which, if you saw it now, you'd be strongly tempted to worship, or else a horror and a corruption such as, as you now meet, if at all, only in a nightmare. He says, basically speaking, everyone's got a eternal destination. And there's going to be some transformation that's going to be unbelievable, he says. This is why it is with the awe and the circumspection proper to them that we should conduct all of our dealings with one another, all friendships, all loves, all plays, all politics. There is no ordinary people. Another way of saying it's not, they're not just people, right? There are no ordinary people. You've, you've never talked, love this, you've never talked to a mere mortal. Think about that. You've never talked to a mere mortal. What's mortal? Meaning like they just die, go on the ground, six feet under, push up daisies, right? You've never talked to a mere mortal. He said nations, cultures, arts, civilizations, these are mortal, right? They'll come, they'll go. They'll die, they'll be gone. He says, and their life is to ours, the life of a gnat. But it's immortals whom we joke with. It's immortals we work with, that we marry, that we snub, and we exploit. Immortal horrors or everlasting splendors. He says that this does not mean that we are to be perpetually solemn. We we must play, but our our merriment must be of the kind of that kind which exists between people who have from the outset taken each other seriously. Right? We take people seriously. Why? Because they're they're not mortal. <laughs> they're immortal. Right? They're going to live forever. And so that's the value and importance of people. I love. Um, um, well, I'll move on from that one because i are running out of time. You've got to hang with me this morning, all right? So it's been three months. All right, so hold on. Last one, because this is, this is my last point, but I'm going to take a little bit of time on this one because this was probably the most, most uh, formidable to me this summer was John Newton. And I'll call it the kingdom of Jesus is what I learned about. Um, um, and, and I say kingdom of Jesus, and we'll talk, Matthew talks a lot about that. If you read the Gospel of Matthew, he'll talk about the kingdom of heaven, kingdom of God. A king, you know, what is that? And, it's, and they'll talk about it. Remember the prayer, one of the prayers in Matthew 6, right? Your kingdom come, your will be what? Done on earth as it is in heaven. There you go, good job. There you speak out, it's good. Sorry, we're communicating here, this is good. All right, so, um, so it's the idea of like what is to come, the, the, the future, which is where this world is going to a place that's being reigned by Christ himself, right, on earth, that's going to happen, that that kingdom, that reign, is, is supposed to be reflected now through us as his people, right? Through, through us. And so that's a lot of what he, what he talks about with this kingdom idea, that basically the church is to be what Jesus would say in Matthew um, chapter 5. We're will to be a, a city on a hill, right? Uh, light of the world, salt of the earth. That's what we are to be as a people to the world in which we live. We're not to hide from it. We're to invade it, to be a part of it, live in it, and, and be those things. Newton, by the way, uh, just to kind of give you a little bit of timeline, you're like, who, where'd this guy, where was he living? He was over in England time. Uh, he was a contemporary of guys like Charles, uh, John Wesley and Charles Wesley too. Uh, John Wesley was a founder of the Methodist uh, movement, Methodist Church. Uh, George Whitfield, so famous kind of pastor, preacher, came to America and England, kind of went back and forth on ship there during that time. He was also, uh, he was discipled by those men, but he was also a mentor to two other men you may have heard of, may not. Uh, one was named William Cooper. His last name is spelled C-O-W-P-E-R. Doesn't sound like how you'd say it, but Cooper, William Cooper. He's a famous poet, uh, but also a famous hymn writer um, as well. Uh, God Moves in Mysterious Ways, There's a Fountain Filled with Blood. If you recognize those hymns, those were written by William Cooper. Uh, he So uh, Newton had a discipleship relationship with him, and also a very formidable one with a guy named William Wilberforce. uh was a young politician at the time in England who ended up being one of the key key movers in the abolitionist movement that happened during this time. So right around the same time, this all happens, right? Late 1700s, same time period as what's happening over here, the American Revolution's happening, okay? So it's the same time period to kind of give you an idea of what's happening. Um, Newton, let me tell you a little bit about him, okay? Because it's important. Uh, now, I'll wrap all this up with kind of some of the things um, I learned from him. He wasn't raised as a Christian. When he got to be 18, um, he, was, uh, he was recruited by what they called press gangs, which is basically uh, anybody in the military, if they were in war, they could recruit you to be part of the military and you had no choice, right? You, you join. That's what happens. And so they, were, they pressed him into the, into the group, joined the military. He hated it, ran away, which was a capital offense at the time. Like, you don't just run away from your post, um, they will kill you and hang you, and that was kind of common. He should have died. The guy had compassion on him. Instead, the, the guy who, who, the captain of that, of that ship for, the, for England, sold him uh, to a slave trader that ship. So you go work with him. So he gets into the slave trade business, okay, is what happens during this time. And, uh, and so he's, he's traded this to the slave ship owner. Uh, he's about 20, about 20 years old. Um, and they would sail along at that time, the, the west coast of Africa. They would dock at what, uh, this is all Newton's kind of biography and his journal notes, they would dock at what they called factories. Um, these factories were the natives of the country, or corralled, he said, being captured by slave hunters in the area. Uh, these were built, supplied, guarded by, by British Parliament, right, they were, they were all part of this. This wasn't like a side gig. This was, slave trading was, was a big part of, uh, of what they were doing at the time. Newton said, quote, he said, once a deal was struck, a, was, once a deal was struck, a factory would become the scene of appalling brutality. He said the natives who had been sold were separated from their families um, he said, "Stripped, stripped naked, branded, fettered, and whipped into submission before being dropped off in terror to the ships that would carry those who survived the eight-week passage, Middle Passage, to the slave markets of the West Indies, which is modern-day kind of Caribbean area, or America." And and this wasn't an oddity. Okay, again, this, Newton wasn't it wasn't odd being part of this practice. Um, the the slave trade business, and this is hard to understand. It's hard to fathom, wrap my brain around this. But it it was the it was the um, it was the, the dream of every boy who grew up in England, right, to be that. Um, it was the, uh, he talked about, uh, what the biographer talked about it was uh, the dream of most English people. You know, they viewed it like the Klondikes of the 19th century did gold digging, right? We got this is, this is the thing to do. This is where you're going to make the money, right? Go, go gold digging. Um, with 40,000 slaves a year, over 15 million total during these four or 500 years, were transferred from Africa to the Americas, vast fortunes were amassed in this. This is where people made their money. Uh, Newton learned the trade. The problem was, this is interesting about Newton's biography, I didn't know all this stuff. He, he not only um, ran into some problems, his captain didn't like him. And it, there's good reason for that, because Newton, who had a knack for writing uh, music, hymns, right, and later on he used it for that, he didn't do this, he would write songs that would um, mock uh, his captain and teach all the other sailors and, on the ship how to sing them. <laughs> So you can imagine, it, it didn't go over well. The captain didn't like him very much. captain ends up selling him to one of those factories where he becomes a slave himself. He gets shackled. He becomes right with them in the same. He lives that life. Um, he, was, uh, he eventually becomes bought again. He's a slave. He gets bought again by a, by a slave factory owner and starts working his way inside of those factories. And his heart just grew, just grew cold and calloused. Uh, to the uh, gruesome operations of slave hunting, capturing, buying, and selling, he should have died multiple times, I mean multiple times he almost died, probably the worst of which, which is made, if you know his story, you may remember was on a, was on a ship going a slave ship ship coming back from America. They would do a triangle they 'd go british uh, Britain to England to America, and kind of keep that triangle and He was on his way back in a huge storm northeastern northeastern storm northeasterner I think we call it. Um, and his ship basically sunk, and he was out there. I mean, he almost died. It was there he first called on God, like first recognized the reality of God. He didn't become a Christian there um, by any means, but he, um, he re- started recognizing, getting interested with the reality of God because he almost died. Um, at, at, age, uh, at age 25, um, he became captain of his own slave ship. So now he's not only working for them, he becomes the captain. He, he starts running the ship. Uh, he would personally, himself, and his journals talk about, would put slaves in irons, dragging them on board the ship, keeping them captive in horrific conditions underneath the deck. He would tear husbands away from wives and children. Um, I may cry a little bit in doing this one. Um, shackling them, screaming in heavy fetters, chaining them in horrific overcrowded spaces below the deck. Um, and like others, like everyone else who, who were on, on those ships, he was also part of the sexual abuse of, Amer- of, of the African women as well aboard the ship. This is what he did. This was life. This is what normal to them. Um, almost most appalling to me of all of this was during these journeys where he started, I mean, the guy wasn't a Christian, so I can't, I can't criticize him too much on that. Um, but he, and this was a common practice among all the captains, uh, they would start, oh, while there were slaves underneath the, underneath the boat, dying, shackled, you know, screaming, they would hold Bible studies on top of the boat, have worship services, sing songs. Right, This is what they would do, because this is, this is England. We're all Christians here. This is what we do while doing the slave trading, Why at the same time doing that. Um, he recorded in his journals. He talked about um, in, in some of this, um, when, I, when I was reading this, this kind of broke my heart, um, how people used Christianity, not only justify what they were doing, by the way. They did use Christianity to justify what they were doing. You say, how in the world did they justify it? Because they viewed it as, as a, they were like missionaries. We're saving these poor Africans from, their, from their, their lives and we're bringing them over to a world that's Christian. That's how they justified it, right, in their minds. Um, but also just how they, um, they blinded themselves to the reality of human lives. Um, Newton himself recorded in his journals how he felt that God was on his side, right? God was helping him do all this. And um, he, along with most of the English people, didn't even see the, they wouldn't call them people actually, at the time. Africans weren't considered people or even humans. He wrote to his wife in one of his journals how he was relieved, he said, when what remained of the ship's cargo was shipped off to Charleston, South Carolina, slave auction, because he felt he had been shut up, he said, quote, with almost as many unclean creatures as Noah did, but with a much smaller ark. Right? They were just animals to him. Um, And again much of what was considered christianity understand this because this is going to come to modern day for us here much of what was considered christianity at the time my friends it was not christianity it was a we would call cultural christianity right it was a it was an abuse which just makes me angry it's abuse of just taking the bible and using it for your own means and ends okay whether it be monetary or whether it be political gain whatever it may be it never appeared to newton along with all of england that there was anything morally or even spiritually wrong with this cruel commercial trading that they did of human beings. In his journal, a lot of times they were very cold and calculated. He would just record X amount of slaves captured, you know, captured X amount of slaves were brought on board. He had also had his notes on the side. You can read them, like his notes written on the side, of like he was complaining about the, the high price or the inadequate physique of the slaves he got. In one entry, he wrote about he, he took a 3-foot, 10-inch boy that was brought to him right? Took him along too. He said, I had to take him because if I didn't take him, I couldn't get anybody else. So I had to take him along. That's about a six-year-old boy. Um, It wasn't until he was 29 years old. So he'd been doing this for 19, 10 years, sorry, from 19 to 29, that he finally gave up the slave trade. He didn't give it up because of more reasons. He gave it up because he wanted to be near this girl that he wanted to marry and wanted to stay on shore and not be gone for all these months at a time. It took another 20 years, and this is about this time is where he, come in, he came into Christ during this time, or right after about 29 years of age. It took another 20 years before he would even wake up to the reality that what they were doing was wrong. Um, again, he wasn't alone. Uh, all of England, those who claim to be Christians around the world, not just, it wasn't just England, was around the world, didn't see any conflict with slave trading and the gospel. He eventually becomes a pastor um, he eventually works, uh, and he chooses to work with the poor of Liverpool at that time. Uh, he was the first one; it was the first person to actually start writing poetry, uh, and what became his hymns. It wasn't his was original goal, but it was like they they started singing them. He did it all so he could teach children good doctrine. Right? That's why he started doing this um, and teaching the poor who didn't have a high kind of education. Interesting note, side note to this one: the the hymn "Amazing Grace," and he wrote over three hundred of them um, total he would write them in a way that were really simple. Go back and think about the song in your head. I wrote down here, 125 <laughs> of the 146 words are one syllable. Think about that, amazing, that's more than one syllable, but think about the rest. Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, I mean, you just keep, it's just one syllable. Real simple, he kept it really, because he was teaching children, and he was teaching the poor, didn't have much of an education, and so that's, that's what he did, that's why he started doing it. Interesting enough, the hymn Amazing Grace was unknown for 120 years after he wrote it. I mean, it was not anything popular to what it is today. Um, it was, uh, it, its popularity actually, interesting enough, this is very ironic, its, its popularity became from, came from America, and guess where it came from in America? The Deep South, and guess who it came from? the African slaves. They were the ones who were singing it. They were the ones that actually put it to music. It wasn't the tune that we do it to now was from them, actually, it wasn't from Newton. Newton just wrote the words. They even added the last line of that hymn, um, when we've been there 10,000 years, bright shine. that was their addition, right? That was what they they, they sung as they worked in the fields together. Um, It wasn't actually until, as you read his biography, it wasn't until Newton ran into a young William Wilberforce, right, this young guy in parliament Um, that he began to confront his own past and to share share the horrors of what he and his country had done uh, with the slave trade. Newton said this, he said, quote, I hope it will always be a subject of humiliating reflection to me that I was once an active instrument in a business at which my heart now shudders, right? I mean, he he carried that. Part of the whole writing of amazing grace was his reflection on what he had done. Wilberforce, right? So this guy, he became a Christian about 26. He started working in Parliament when he was 21. He was a young guy. But at 26, he came into Christ. And the only reason he really went to meet Newton was because Newton was kind of a famous pastor at the time. And he wanted to meet Newton because he said, I think I need to give up politics. I need to be a pastor. And probably one of the greatest moments in Newton's whole life, you know what he did? He said, son, you need to stay there. You, you're, you, you have a calling from God to stay in Parliament, to stay where you are, because I believe that God's going to use you to change and abolish the slave trade. And he eventually did. Right, but I thought it was really neat that, that uh, as you read the biography, like most pastors would say, yeah, absolutely, let's get you in ministry, man. Let's get out of there. Let's get into what's really important. And it's like, no, no, that that's really important, right? What you're doing. Right? I just thought was that was really good. Um, it took 20 years from that point to finally end it. Uh, calling out and, and <laughs> both of them, Will of and Newton, uh, would call out the church as not really being the church and Christians not really being Christians. Right? They were confronting a whole cultural Christianity because they were using. Interesting. Now they were using Bible verses, right, to justify what they were doing, right? And they're like, you're not, actually guys, they actually would call these guys, they would call Newton and Wilberforce liberal Christians. We were the conservative ones who were doing the slave trade because it's in the Bible. You guys were trying to take verses out of the Bible, right? It's in there, right? And that's what they would, that's how the struggle, that's what it took 20 years to convince the church, I'll use that in quotation marks, to actually come on board to believe that what they were doing was, was wrong, and the linchpin of the whole thing, what caused the case against slavery to actually be uh, to be abolished was when, um, was when Wilberforce brought, brought Newton. He's 81 years old at this time. He lives another six months after this. He's 81 and brings him as his key witness to the trial to testify of his own life and what he did and what it was like on slave ships, right? Um, really interesting. And so Newton, in that trial, testified about how uh, different things. How he he used thumb screws on the slaves. You say, what is that? Um, you know, they grinded a kind of uh, nail into the fingernails and toenails of slaves to get them to quiet down on the ship. He testified um, as to what he saw others do as well on these slave ships. Uh, how they uh, he called it jointed the slaves. Newton said, um, quote, they they cut off with an axe first their feet, then their legs below the knee, then their thighs. And like manner, their hands and their arms below the elbow and then their shoulders, till their bodies remained only like a tree trunk when all the branches were lopped off. And lastly, he said, then when they were having their fun, they lastly would just cut off their heads because they weren't dead yet. This is what they would do because they weren't humans to them. They weren't human beings. Um, he spoke of how they would tighten a rope around their heads for fun, pull it tight until, quote, their eyes were forced out of their, out of their heads, uh, and then they would cut their head off like just, just for fun, just for sport. Uh, after giving the barbaric portrayal of the unmerciful whippings and the thumbscrew tortures and the excruciating killings of slaves, Newton went on to talk about, in his trial, the plight of, uh, of the African women. He told the story uh, on trial that day. He told the story about a, a young mother uh, with a baby in her arms having taken into slavery on, on a boarding on one of his longboats, and one of his sailors kind of went out with this longboat to bring this lady and her baby in, onto the ship. He said, while being rolled out to the slave ship, the baby's crying disturbed the longboat's um, um, his the, the, the captain, who threatened to silence the child. Eventually, this made him made this made him become furious. So he did indeed silence the child. He tore the baby from the mother's arms and hurled it into the sea. He testified how families were separated from each other. He said, "Quote: As sheep and lambs are separated for the butcher." He then wrote about how a hundred slaves one time were thrown into the sh- uh, thrown into the sea across because. They ran out of water, and they didn't have enough water for everybody, and so they just, just threw them into the ocean to see him drown and then claim insurance purposes for that. Um, he testified about the frequent sexual abuse of women slaves on board ships. Uh, once the trial was over... Um, Many churches asked, Newton. I thought it was interesting, once this was over, many of the churches spoke out against, because Newton was a famous pastor, right? He had a famous church in Liverpool, like he was a very outspoken Christian kind of guy, and they, they asked him to stop speaking about slave trade. You need to shut your mouth, like you need to stop talking about it. Newton said this, he said, quote, I cannot stop. What? So the old African blasphemers, what he called himself, I was an African blasphemer, Stop while I can still speak. He said, I can still speak, I'm going to talk about it. And within a few weeks, the age of 82, Newton made his final statement. This is what he said. This is on his dying bed. He said, quote, my memory is nearly gone, but I remember two things, that I am a great sinner and that Christ is a great Savior. Right? That's how we ended that. He had never forgot himself, right? Never forgot himself. Um, I'll be honest with you guys. There was moments and I was re- I did not plan. I didn't, I left for a sabbatical before all the stuff happened our culture happened. Okay? So I, I had Newton sitting on my shelf. Didn't have any idea that this was going to be the coinciding with what's happening around us even today. Um, and not to be honest with you, as I was reading it and and reading, you know, and, and different stuff, I um, I, mean, I got real mad actually. And I just I, I want to be transparent with you so you understand my struggles with some of these things. Reading these things, like, um, I got I get really angry. Um, I actually I wanted to punch a hole in my wall. <laughs> my wife actually stopped me. Um, but I was. I was just just kind of lost it, um, just crying wise, and I was um, I got very upset at that. I was so frustrated um, as I read the stories, and I, I was so frustrated, and not really necessarily just Newton at the time. Again, before he was a believer, even after he became a believer, but even as a pastor, when he became a pastor, he would write in his he would write in his stories about how he was convicted of personal sins of greed and pride and lust. He was, But he never talked about until, again, the end of his life that the corporate sin of in his country of the slave trade they had done. He would write about as a pastor how he spoke out about the English's treatment of the Americans. Like he was very verbal about that. That got him in a lot of trouble, by the way, if you're British and the revolution's happening and he felt that the British were unkind to the American soldiers. Uh, but again, nothing about the slave trade. He spoke out about the use of candles and torchlights in town. They were like, be like our modern day fireworks. They were kind of running around the town with those accidentally set fire to some houses that burned, and he wrote, he wrote a hymn about it, re- opened a relief fund to help those who lost their homes. But again, no mention of evils of slave trade during that time. He started Christian schools, he started a pastor's college, to train pastors. He took on the Church of England to try to reform it and the things that they believed doctrinally. Again, nothing regarding uh, slave trade to the last ten years of his life did he even mention it. Um, Jonathan Aiken, one of the, uh, the the commentator or the biographer I was reading. He said, quote, understand this. And he, he, he tried, he said, this is not excusing Newton, he said, but it, this is true. Not one single Christian leader in the mid-18th century England realized, let alone complained, that slave trading was a spiritual and humanitarian abomination. Nobody, right? It wasn't until over here on this side that the Quakers actually were the first ones to actually start, if you know the history of this, to start to speak up about it. It was the first denomination or group of Christians that actually did anything Uh, historically about it. And I guess what got to me the most uh, in light of all of what's going on is that the church historically, and I say church historically like through history. I read a lot of church history, right? I guess what kind of got to me the most was that historically the church has taken issue with, spoken up against many things that aren't necessarily wrong or bad. They were good to do so, but they've neglected to deal with things like this or address things that pertain to the value and worth of people. I just finished this past year reading uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer's um, biography as well, it's a big one. Uh, interesting, he came over to America in 1930s and he said, he said, quote, God has granted American Christianity no reformation. He said that because he spent time with African Americans in the country, right, and, and realized what was going on at the time. Uh, we tend to make, I feel like we make a mountain out of molehill on things and issues and doctrines and yet neglect how we treat people, right, and that just can't be the case. Matthew 23, Jesus had this condemnation to the scribes and Pharisees. He said this, he called them hypocrites. He says, you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. There was no suggestion that the Pharisees were opposed to these things. There's no, they weren't against justice or mercy or faithfulness. It's, it's just that the problem was that they did not devote the same care right? To working out the treatment of people over the minutia of, you know, tithing herbs kind of thing. So we asked ask the question, what minutia do we need to reprioritize or that we might get to many of the core commitments that Jesus maybe wants us to focus on? This is what I got from the Gospel of Matthew, right? Um, in reading this this summer. How are we as a church bringing the kingdom of God to bear upon the world in which we live? How are we loving people? We can't change everything or everybody right we can change us and we can work on us how are we listening how are we doing Uh, how are we doing what we can to to fight for mercy and faithfulness and justice that jesus says there it killed me this summer to think that christians were fighting over you know we we fight over herbs right dividing those things up you know we complain you know these things really i mean that means seriously like this I mean, there, there, are, there are greater there are people in this world that we need to care for, we need to love, we need to look out for, and we need to be a part of loving them, right? Um, we spent five years as a church turning the ship. I've been here over five years now. Eddie, I think it's my 12th year, according to you, but, um, or according to me, you make fun of me. But um, five years is we're turning the ship. We did a lot of great, we had a lot of focus internally, right? a lot of work on changing and understanding our doctrine, making sure we're right on doctrine, we understand the reality of God, because those things are super, super important. All right, we did a lot of work on that. Right, we did a lot of constitutional change, we changed the way we understand how pastors and deacons work and working as a team. And we, We've gotten to a good position. I, I really am thankful for where we are today. Okay, there's a lot of, lot of stuff that went on with all of that, but in light of all of that, it's like now it's okay, now let's turn outward, let's, let's, let's stand shoulder to shoulder maybe six feet apart, I don't know, but uh, you know, stand, stand shoulder to shoulder and look out and let's, let's serve people, right? Let's get the gospel out. Let, let's go and find where, where there's pain, where there's hurting. This is part of our whole, and I'll talk about this in Gospel of Matthew, this is part of the whole like, we talk about church planting, right? Why, why church planting? There's not a lot of churches, why church plant? Church planting areas that need churches. Places where, and I don't mean by dropping in. I don't mean by like, we're gonna plant a church in Indianapolis and we're gonna drive there and we're gonna do our Sunday service. It's not the service, okay, it's the people. We're going we're gonna to take people, and you're going to move into a geographical area. You're going to live among neighbors. You're going to make new friends, right? You're going to work among them, live among them, play among them, and live in their life in order to love them, care for them, and point them to Jesus and, and, and love them, right? That, that's church planting. Is getting into the place, not you know, dropping a bomb from you know, a further distance. That's why we do church planting. That's why that's important. Um, as well as what we can do here and find more ways to serve our community here in Brownsburg. Um, I want, I really, I was telling the pastors, this is uh, Justin and Eddie this week, I was talking. I said, I really want you you guys to get the philosophy of ministry. What do we do? Why do we do what we do? That's basically what philosophy of ministry is. Why do we do it? Why are we here? What's the point? <laughs> why here, not there? Like what? Why Parkside Bible Church? What are we about? And I want you to be able to get that so much so that you becomes your idea, your ownership, and not mine. It's not Chris's idea or Eddie's crazy ideas. It's a kind of a category of things we come up with. Um, you know, so it's 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 not that. It's like no, this is this is my church, right? This is my church. This is my family. This is this is what we are doing. It's like Eddie and I were talking. It's like the language even on the park has changed over the last couple of years, right? At first, it was like, "What are we doing? What are, what are you guys doing with that park? <laughs> what are you guys doing with that land out there?" Are there people coming to that park, you know, kind of thing, or that playground? And all of a sudden, if you notice, the language starts to shift. It has started to shift. You know, it's now become, hey, are people in my playground, our playground, right? Are are people over there in our our park? Like, it, it becomes ours, right? If you notice that the language has started to change, you can hear it in conversations. You're starting to own the idea of like, oh, yeah. That's why we have that thing. I mean, so many conversations with, it took doing it and looking back going, oh, okay, now I understand why we did that. Okay, I see that, <laughs> um, right? It's, it's an opportunity to engage people in our community. How can we move into that and to serve people in that way? We are called as a church to go sit with the world, be present in its tragedy and sorrow and pain. Again, this so is why the church is not a huge building, it's not a service, it's a people, a group of people, who together infiltrate their community, thrust themselves into where the pain is and the hurt is. As Jonathan Edwards' uh, writer once said, um, he said, the surest test of an authentic work of the Spirit is an eagerness to reclaim the, be- the hidden beauty of those who remain unloved. Um, so I'll leave it at that. I don't even have a conclusion to my notes. <laughs> um, we're going to start next week, Gospel Matthew. We're going to start chapter three. We're going to look at the life of Jesus. We're going to look at how he interacts with people how he valued people, how he approached them. And I pray that God will take all of that to kind of just transform our view of people um, and use that. And we'll, we'll go from that to the book of Acts and we'll talk about how the, how the people in the, the early church took what they learned from Jesus, not just what they were taught, but what they caught, is what we'd say, right? They caught a lot of what, what was Jesus about, right? And that's what we'll see in the Gospel of Matthew. We're gonna watch him, as it were. We're gonna look at the narrative stories. We're gonna watch him and learn. And then we'll go to Acts and learn about what, how, how they did it. Right, how they implemented the life of Christ and the, and the mission of Christ into what was church planting uh, in, that, in that culture, okay? So um, I'm gonna pray. Pastor, I didn't, I, you know, I didn't even prepare what I'm doing after this. So I'm just gonna pray, and then you can figure out what to do next. <laughs> Let me pray. Father, thank you uh, for the opportunity to be together. Thank you for letting me be back. Um, God, I, um, I, I pray for us as, as a people, God, you would, we don't have all the answers or solutions to the problems of our world. I know as Eddie was praying earlier, um, there's a lot of trouble, problems in our, just our very country. There's a lot of problems all around the world. Um, but God, we're here. We're here for you. We're here uh, for people. We're here, um, God, and, and want to be used by you, however you see fit, whatever that may look like. Um, give us creativity. Uh, God, give us opportunities. Open our eyes. Um, to see people as you see people, um, and God help us to um, to see people that would uh, would come and know you, and uh, and God would be brought to the to the Savior's feet, um, and that lives will be transformed, places will be transformed, communities um, transformed. God, as a result of the gospel and and the effort and the, the eyes and feet of Jesus, that we strive to be uh, in our community, in Jesus' name, Amen.